Everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have somehow managed to make it to episode 70, which is just a crazy thing. I say this every 10 episodes. I hope everyone is going to get used to me saying this because as we continue to uh, put more and more of these on, uh, it's going to be amazing to everyone that we continue to find guests who, uh, who are willing to join us. But we, we are talking about modern enterprise architecture and our current guest slash victim or maybe victim slash guest uh, is from is the managing director at Element 8, uh, Yaku Markwa. Uh, Yaku, welcome to, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. And I'm glad you you made your way all the way down to Africa. It's, it's probably it's probably a first outside of Graham last week or the, or the past uh-huh. two episodes. Yeah, so uh, we are slowly expanding, and I've been thinking to this to myself. So we are slowly expanding time zones. I, I think we've come from at least two, three. We're, we're, we've hit at least three continents that that I can think of at uh, at this point, and we certainly have plans to get to at least continents four and five. I, I think uh, Antarctica is going to be different, but if anyone knows anyone doing some industrial work down in Antarctica. We will find time to do a live show whenever they have a signal in order to uh, in order to get out. But uh, but no, we, we are always happy to get different people's uh, perspectives on the show. And, and I think that this is going to be one of the most exciting things is to do kind of come some of that comparing and how similar is is the African um, environment to the Americas. Right. Uh, we talked about South America. Um, I think middle to end of last year. And it's always interesting to see the differences, but so I found so much of the markets are are always similar, but, but before we get ahead of ourselves, can you give us a little bit of your background? How, how, I guess, what were all of the choices in your life that that led you to element date and and what is element eight? And can you give us the background on that? Cool. Yeah, for sure. So, um, my career started in 2000, straight out of university. I didn't didn't follow the very traditional um, sort of. Let me put it this way: the day the the first day of, at uni, I I wasn't too sure what I was going to study. Um, so I picked something completely off off the beat, and I went with psychology, which um, probably about two semesters, and I realized that this isn't quite for me, or it, it or I'm not quite for it. I'm not sure which way around it was. And um, I, I didn't fit the profile of your typical psychologist, I suppose, which, which is in hindsight is not a bad thing. And I actually switched over to industrial psychology and uh, I majored more in, in business subjects. Um, and industrial psychology exposed me a little bit to the working environment of the, the working men and women uh, it's in, in our offices and in our plants. And that's where a little bit of the interest came from. But yeah, I started my career straight out of university at a local distributor, industrial software distributor, which uh, in those days were the were the Wonderware distributor here in South Africa. Sorry um, to interrupt. I, just wanted to ask, uh, industrial psychology, what does that entail? Because I'm, I'm curious, I guess I understand what a typical psychology work, uh, or I guess like uh, educational background is, but what is industrial psychology? Yeah, it's a good question for that. So industrial psychology is more around the disciplines focusing on people within the business in terms of how teams work together, the different roles within teams. It's quite broad. It would cover, for example, ergonomics in the workplace, um, having an efficient, safe um, and productive work environment. 
so it's quite broad industrial psychology, but the bit that really that really sparked my interest was the was the bit around the people focus. Our teams work together and the different roles and how to create effective teams and productive teams. Um, I haven't, you know, I did include the business subjects as part of that, so the marketing, uh, economy, um, all, all of the, the typical business studies that I included as part of that. But it was really the really the people focus uh, as part of industrial psychology that that uh, that was my interest. Um, and it's sort of stuck. I think even until today, when we look at when we look at teams and engineering teams or technical teams or project teams or you know, the, there's so much dynamic within the team environment. You could be a you could be a lone developer sitting somewhere in an office, but how you interact with your team, whether it's physical, in person, um, or just a just a weekly project meet, and how the leader of those teams get a cohesive unit going. I mean, that's very often the the success or failure of a project. So that that's really what I was passionate about, and. Um, yeah, started with Wonderware um, back in 2000. Uh, most of the team of Element 8 were actually from, from the Wonderware distribution days many, many years ago. I think, I think you may have referred to it. I'll, I'll put the blame or the, or I'll point my finger at you. I think you, you called it the Wonderware heydays, um, last week. It, uh, it certainly was an exciting time, not only for, for Wonderware, but definitely for industrial automation software. It was, it was, um, some groundbreaking, innovation happening at that time. And yeah, I spent the majority of my time and career with uh, Wonderware distribution in various roles. Um, sort of went into a little bit of a different direction, followed a cybersecurity um, track for, for a couple of years, which was fascinating as well. Uh, security is definitely where a lot of the, a lot of the action um, is at the minute. And somehow the small group, uh, the men and women that now have now uh, we call ourselves Element 8. We all went our different routes from the Wonderware distribution. We found our, our paths together again, um, thanks to Mr. Graham Walton, who, who was uh, um, a guest on your on your uh, show last week and the week before. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, before we get to today and what you're doing at uh, Element 8, what was the, maybe in retrospect, the difference? Are, are you seeing... Uh, wide, I would say, difference from today to how automation was done in the early 2000s? Are you seeing maybe any trends that have picked up or are mm. you seeing more, I would say, like similar practices, but maybe the technologies have either been rebranded or are different now? Like, I'm, I'm just curious to get that perspective since I still wasn't in the field at that time. So I'm just curious how uh, how things were done. Yeah, they, they are certainly a lot of differences. And there are also a lot of things that have remained exactly the same. Um, so it would probably depend on the on, on the view that you have in the area that you're referring to. If I look at it, so a lot of my time in in, in my career was spent in the in the marketing and the sales side of of distribution. And I think there the most evident shift has has been around the value add around you as a as a marketer or a or a, or a salesperson. You know, a couple of years ago, the focus was all around let's sell the features of our tech. And in many cases, it was successful because the tech had very unique features. Um, but I think the whole who we are and why you would want to do business with us today has become all about the community, the combined value of that community, um, and also helping people make informed decisions 
as opposed to selling them something. And very often that means referring them to a product or a solution that is not within your immediate offering. Um, you know, where a couple of years ago, you probably would have been dragged outside and, and shot for that. But, the, you know, it's all about building those trusted relationships and those trusted advisor relationships. So that's from the sales marketing aspect. From a technical technical point of view, um, a couple of the leading technologies, at least um, for, for the last 20, 30 years, some of those were developed 100 years ago, 90 years ago, some of those brands and those businesses. Um, and in many cases, a lot within that world hasn't changed, um, not only from a tech point of view, but also the way that they have built their commercial models and the way that they do business. Um, um, probably the most disruptive changes or probably the most significant areas and also the most exciting is, is on the customer side. Um, you know, um, years ago, if we look at something like the automation pyramid, you know, I'm sure we're all very familiar with, with the good old automation pyramid. It was essentially built on a clean horizontal architecture with various various dependencies from ground floor to, to boardroom. And just the introduction and the, and the um, uh, sort of pervasive IoT kind of sphere, I, I, I always struggle with IoT. I have a love-hate relationship with IoT. But just the introduction and the advent of these cheap networks and devices has completely disrupted that clean horizontal architecture um, and how we interact. And the systems that we would typically deploy in those architectures have changed. Um, you know, something like, for example, like a SCADA. A SCADA was never designed to be a middleware. And all of a sudden, a SCADA finds itself in this realm between real time and historical and enterprise data needs. As, as a middleware that it was never designed to be. Um, so I, if I look at where we were in 2000 and 2001, where I started, I think there's a couple of given, uh, given must-haves and requirements that have remained the same around security, around reliability. Um, but all of, all of the, let's label it, the digital transformation accelerators that have been introduced over the last couple of years have forced us to look at the tech that we deploy and question the scalability that we have um, in, in some of these systems that we've been using for the last 20 years, because that's that's really where the, where the secret make or break is happening nowadays around the scalability. That was probably a very long answer. No, I find that very interesting, again, because I have conversations with uh, my automation peers, and in many instances, I almost take some of these technologies for granted, I would say, right? So not to speak for everyone, but something that is connected to the network. For me, the, the bottom line is if it can be connected to the network, then it should be, you know, but depending on the industry, depending on the plant, it's not always the case. So there's still a lot of, uh, I guess there's a shift happening where we're collecting and producing so much data that for some, it makes sense to gather all that data. And then there's conversations in other I would say like silos or companies, plants, where it's still not an obvious transition, right? Um, so mm. it, it's always interesting to see how that shift in technology took place and try to, I guess, understand where the, not necessarily the fears, but where the challenges are for those who don't do it the same way as you do, right? Like, I guess that's how I would put it. Absolutely. You, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think that what you've mentioned is very important is the, 
there, there's always a business case. There's always a business reason for doing something, you know, and if it, regardless of what the initiative, the project, the device, the, the, the line, the process, whatever it is that you're looking at deploying and adding or, or at least getting a view of the data off, the very first step is to understand what is, what are we trying to solve for from a business point of view? Then you have to know your process and know your problem. That, that's really the departure point. You know, just because we can connect everything and be, and, and, and because we can get a view of anything and everything on our network doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to give us good quality information. So yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, it's important to relate that back to what is the business problem and what are we trying to solve for? I guess, yeah, for me, the example is a lot of in, in many instances for new systems, right? I think it's very, or I guess it's easier to do the groundwork on a new system to make sure that everything connected can pass that data rather than, you know, kind of not do it and then try and figure out how we can get it later on. So I'm always in the, I would say in the camp of making sure that we do it upfront rather than, because I've been in many projects, you know, where they would like to get sensor data. Again, it could be your VFDs, valves, whatever, what have you. And it becomes very, not just cost prohibitive, but I think as you've mentioned, it, it's not always clean data that you get out of those systems. So you need to invest a lot of time and effort uh, to get that into good condition. But in any case, I, I think that's a side tangent. We can maybe discuss a little bit uh, later, but I wanted to get to know a little bit more. What are you doing at Element 8 today specifically? And maybe we can also get your perspective as someone who I think educates integrators in, in many aspects, like how that is different from, let's say, an integrator um, educating the end customer. I, I would like to get that perspective as well from you. Yeah, that is a, that is a very different view and also a very different departure point from a from a from a conversation you know you you typically wouldn't start with the tech excuse me with the technology um but yeah element eight we're a we're a small small group of men and women uh, as i said we're a we're a software distributor we are the distributor for ignition um canary and the flow flow information platform which i think graham officially renamed the analytics hub um last week thanks to dave's pressure um, but yeah, we're a software distributor, which means that we are in the business of building a community around these technologies, but not only around those technologies, but, but building a, a like-minded community of people that understand how to use technology um, to, to empower their people and improve their processes. Um, so that means we do spend a lot of time on education not only product education, uh, we do provide training obviously on, on, on Ignition and Canary and Flow, but education around what is the best application for which product at which time. Um, you know, it's not 2001 anywhere, we're, 2001 where, where the answer to any misfit or any, any application that's missing is a rip and replace. It, it doesn't feel like rip and replace is the only solution um, where probably a couple of years ago it was. So we spend a lot of time in education, Vlad, and, and you're right, our primary audience is our system integrators. And system um, uh, integrators are also very much like the rest of us. They, they, they're creatures of habit. Um, they become familiar with a specific, not only technology, but a way of doing things. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of take it on ourselves to make sure that we, the same way that we help 
customers make informed decisions. We want to make sure that our system integrators are, are best positioned with the correct knowledge to help those customers make the best decisions. Um, and you would both know that the world of, of, of industrial automation right now is a busy world. It's noisy. Um, there are a lot of conversations. There are a lot of messages. There are a lot of stories being told. Um, and I think very often people feel confused and they feel a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and that, and I think, in fact, some people even stop engaging because they, they're not too sure what to do next because they have so many conflicting pieces of advice. Um, so that's really our focus is to spend time with system integrators to help. We're not the holders of all knowledge, but to at least together with them, try and figure out this, this exciting world that we are in today. And, you know, and it feels like every, every couple of weeks is a new piece of, of technology that pops up somewhere from some vendor. Is how do we use these things? How do we put it all together and, and create architectures that are scalable um, for our customers? So we, we spend most of our time with our system integrators. And I'm curious, you know, from an educational standpoint, when you talk to uh, systems integrators, is there a perspective maybe on what is not necessarily more important to them, but what is the biggest challenge? Is it more on the technical side or is it more on like the sales and providing like a business case that makes sense for the end user side? I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what do, do you see them struggling with the most? You know, is it implementation of the product? So again, understanding maybe how to code a SCADA system, how to tie it in at the plant level, how to deploy on the architecture that makes sense? Or is it more, again, when they have conversations with the customers, it's understanding what business challenges they want to solve and kind of providing more than just the technical implementation but be able to resolve uh, business cases. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of real challenges at, at the moment, at least from conversations that we've had with our local system integrators. And, and I would imagine that there are some similarities and some universal challenges across the globe right now. Uh, the first and, and probably the most obvious one is the, is the hardware supply chain challenges that we're facing. You know, um, I just look at the wall behind you, Vlad, and I think that you would, you would probably be able to financially retire if you, if you were able to part with some of, some of your toys on the wall behind you. But, you know, it's it's a it's it's a real real challenge at the minute. You know, and system integrators are having to probably craft and build solutions that they wouldn't have done um, four years ago um, without sacrificing quality or, or performance. So that's that's a little bit of a, a macro outside kind of influence or envi environmental challenge. Um, but there's a couple of others I think around the people the people aspect of being a system integrator. At least here in South Africa, we find that less people are entering our industry. Um, we have less engineers entering industrial automation. And, you know, it's never, it's never been a very, I'm going to use the word sexy industry to be in unless you're in it. And it's just the most amazing industry to be in. But, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to pick a, a specific technical field, I would imagine today in 2022, there are other fields that are far more exciting and, and attractive to, to, to young students and, and young graduates. Um, so we just find in, in our community in South Africa right now that there are far less young people entering our industry, which makes it, makes it really, really challenging to deploy the kind of very technical solutions that we did, we were able to in the past by very experienced people. We just find that a lot of those very experienced people have retired. Um, or very much from a South African point of view, they've actually left the country completely and they've, they've found new homes in 
North America, in Europe, um, where there are just far more attractive job opportunities. So system integrators today, they not only have to be the masters of their craft in terms of implementing, they also have to be the trusted advisors in terms of, in terms of all the tech that's available um, and all the new ways of doing things, which means they have to spend an incredible amount of time researching, understanding those to be able to understand the value, then doing and executing and commissioning projects with less people and less experienced people, um, and then very, very importantly, um, with smaller budgets they had a couple of years ago. You know, the cost drivers and the and the the cost factors are, are absolutely um, big, big barriers and prohibiting um, uh, factors right now in our industry. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I, I sort of think back about 2001, and I think about the capex investments by some customers, especially in the mining space. You know, mining is, is a very he heavy capex in, in invest um, investment um, focused uh, industry. And I think about some of the budgets that I recall for some of the projects we did in 2001, 2002. And I relate that back to a South African RAND value today. And, and it's mind, uh, I wouldn't say mindless. At the time, it made sense from a business point of view. But it, it's just incredible amounts of money that were spent on systems that you can now deploy with um, very, very different, but equally as impressive and secure and um, uh, uh, effective new technologies. Um, and, and a lot of that is, is sort of faltering down, which means that customers are absolutely tightening the budgets and wanting to understand if there are more favorable, economically favorable and, and uh, not cheaper because that has a bad connotation, but just more cost-effective and scalable solutions out there. And you, you're probably going to hear me say the word scalable a couple of times because that's, that, that's a very big factor. And we've had that discussion uh, last week quite uh, extensively. Uh, Dave, maybe do you want to jump into the yeah, conversation? So, uh, so I have I've got a comment on the mining side, and maybe we'll we'll dive into mining a little bit more. Um, and then I've got a question uh, about the integrators that we were talking about. So, I guess on the mining side, I, I'm not sure I have seen, and mining is not something that we've talked about on the show uh for i don't know why other than it th there are some very there are some portions of the americas that are very much into mining and then i think most of the rest of it is just absolutely uh not into uh, there are no mines to work uh but I, I have seen mines well i guess i've come in on the second half of projects that you know at some point in the 90s they invested tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to completely redo all entire control systems because the, the price of whatever ore was high. And then at some point it dipped below the point in which they would make money. And so they just left the system untouched, uncommissioned in place. And then 20 years later, the price was to the point in which it needed to be. And so they did the only logical thing of rip out all the stuff that had never been used and put a new system in because do that, it all over was, again. that was, do it all over again. I mean, the, the stuff that they had put in 20 years ago was was probably old and maybe obsolete at that point. But uh, that is kind of uh, that is kind of the the polar high end of mining. I've also worked with mines who couldn't possibly afford like a hundred dollars for a service call or wouldn't potentially afford a hundred dollars for a service call. Um, and so I, I have seen both uh, both the extremes. Uh, we've certainly talked about oil and gas on the show. 
I would say that mining is an even more boom and bust uh, version of the oil and gas we've seen. Uh, Even one oil and gas is not expensive, right? When you're not going to make very much money out of it, you still have to have people go out to the, the well pads. But when mines don't make money, they just become ghost towns, right? Everyone picks up their travel trailers and drives back home to wherever home is. And maybe you show up three weeks later, maybe you show up six months later, maybe you show up 20 years later when the next generation is coming in to, uh, to attempt to learn how, uh, how to run the mine. Um, but I want to go back to the, the conversation that we were having about integrators, right? So we've had lots of conversations about integrators. I would say some not small portion of people watching and listening either work for or have worked for um, an integrator um, in the past because that, that is just the, the market that we live in. Um, I think it was four or five weeks ago. We had Ira Sharp uh, come on. We were talking about the uh, the industrial Internet of Things, and we were doing an intro, and and he made this interesting comment about needing a new breed of integrator, right? Like I think that that was paraphrasing what he was saying that we need people who have skills that are outside of just um, kind of the instrumentation. We need people that know how to code. We need people that know how to scale. We need people that can take a number of any of the pieces of hardware uh, on the wall behind Vlad and work those together in order to build a solution. And I think it is becoming more and more important. And I have seen most weeks people going and pulling in new PLCs and other controllers to attempt Hmm. to go deliver jobs. So when, when, I guess, when, when you guys at Element 8 are looking for integrators to partner with, I would imagine that you have a specific kind of, uh, you have an ideal integrator in mind, right? Like I imagine they have to have some sort of skills. Can you share what you're looking for uh, skills wise or otherwise um, when you're looking for integrators to kind of help build this next generation of modern enterprise architecture? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a very good question. And um, I think, yeah, I definitely, I, I know that, um, somebody like like Walker Walker's also been talking about the new the new system integrator you know I've never been a system integrator I've worked with system integrators you know my entire career um I when when you say we look for system integrators to partner with the first thing really is um I think I mentioned to you to you um earlier we we look for thirsty horses um we don't want to force anybody to hey look, look at our new tech and this is how it's valuable and and we can help you sell it and do projects you know we are looking for thirsty horses and what that means is that it's somebody that already recognizes that there is a different way of doing things um, they already recognize that there is a different way of building an architecture they already recognize that there is a different way of engaging with a customer um, and for example, to focus on making the customer the hero, as opposed to being the guy when you arrive at site that everybody, you know, showers you with caviar because they they couldn't wait for you to come to site to fix this one thing, and then you take your bag and you leave again. Uh, but rather be the person to depart the knowledge and the skills and the um, and share. And we, I almost um, I almost want to say we 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 we're looking to partner with people that that are the, the kind of people that we would we would employee within our business. Um, so, so there's a gentleman, Patrick Leccioni, he wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player. And uh, 
you talk about, you spoke about the three characteristics being hungry, hum, humble, and smart. And uh, I, I want to make that sort of direct um, comparison to to the to the partners that we we choose to. It sounds very um, uh, maybe it sounds a little bit arrogant, but the people that we choose to target and work with are exactly that: they're hungry, humble, and smart. Um, and, and most importantly, they're willing to share and depart their knowledge, recognizing that that will build a stronger customer, a stronger community, and a stronger relationship with that customer, as opposed to, you know, making sure you bill for every hour to 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 get the dollar or the rand and, and be the person that's always going to be relied upon. Because at some point in time, the reliance on you um, is going to disappear as different technologies enable this reliance on you. Um, so we're really blessed in South Africa. We have an incredible system integrator community. Um, and the kind of skills has changed a lot. You know, very, very strong PLC integration skills, typically Siemens, uh, Rockwell. Uh, there's a couple of other new technologies in that space that have been introduced. We see something like Opto22. Um, there's some really good people with Opto skills in our industry, in our local South African community now. I mean, that's the bread and butter, right? That's where you do your control loop, stop, start. That, that's that's where it all happens. Um, probably all the way through to MES. MES has always been a little bit of a specialist area. Um, I, I I think I said to you last week, I, I don't think anybody's an expert because the second you call yourself an expert, you lose your expertise. But being a specialist in MES has always been a very, um, very specific field that not many people understand the, the relationship between the technology, the business requirements, um, and managing the tension between IT and OT, which very often happens in MES. And then as of, as of the last couple of years, I want to call it business analytics. I think the field of data, um, yeah, there are there are some system integrators that really recognize that as the next opportunity and the area where they need to understand modeling of data. You know, we talk about standardization. We talk about standardization, and we have been for the last 30 years, standardization of templates, PLs, whatever in our business standardization. What about the standardization of data? What does that look like? How do we do that? Where do we start doing that? And how will that benefit different people within our organization? Um, so... Yeah, the system integrators that we that we would love to work with and that we try to work with uh, and invite to to work with um, is is really all of that. Um, we're we're probably the data to information value um, aspect, which is the more recent one, is is the one that we focus on particularly because that's really where we there's a lot of low hanging fruit in 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 markets right now. Um, and the system integrators that get that, the value of that, um, th those are the people that we enjoy and love working with. But we work with anybody. No, I think that's uh, I think that's very interesting. You know, as a follow up, I'm curious. Again, you've mentioned skills that are maybe on the like the PLC and instrumentation level stack, but ultimately you provide or you supply, uh, as you've mentioned, ignition. You supply cannery. You supply. Uh, flow software so you go all the way through the stack but as we've discussed even last week i think having a foundation and a good understanding of how the data is coming through is very important before you get to i would say like the higher level like software is are you seeing that there's typically a uh, again do you have 
or I, I guess let me let me rephrase that question a little bit. Do you see a complete package where you know integrators come in with the full stack experience, or do you see them having like an expertise more on instrumentation, or or uh, maybe at the higher end of the stack? And how do you maybe like manage that or complement that with uh, what you're doing at Element A? How do you educate them that again, someone who comes in maybe at the MES level or SCADA level needs to develop uh, like the PLC and instrumentation expertise or vice versa? Yeah, naturally, most of the partners we work with have, have been um, in the traditional business for, for many years. So they do have the the PLC SCADA skills um, and, and MES skills um, and even some skills integrating your typical ERP integration with SAP. Really? I think a lot of system integrators, a lot of the system integrators recognize that the technologies and some of the technologies we use today are different. So they would, for example, um, if I look at, let's, let's use an example of the field of study. You know, a couple of years ago, it was typical electrical engineers. Electrical engineers, they were the people we wanted in our teams. Uh, some of the mechanical guys, uh, the, the, the folks on our team are mechanical engineers, as an example. Um, and then mechatronics uh, as, as a hybrid or as a combination of, of, of the different disciplines. And more recently, we see, um, I'm not sure exactly what the technical term is, but or, 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 the, or, the, or the specialist term is, but it's, it's almost a front-end developer, you know, some, some really good really? coding education and experience, um, Python being one of them, for example. So I almost want to say it's, it's computer science graduates. And a lot of system integrators are um, are employing in their businesses, even front end web developers, um, purely to focus on the UI UX um, part of whatever the solution is that they are delivering. Um, something something about UI and UX. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a little bit of focus on UX and the experience, but typically everything would look the same, regardless of. The industry, the screen, the layout, the mimics, everything would be the same kind of colors. Um, it would be consistent around a couple of design principles and, and approaches. Um, when now, if a system integrator brings in a UI, UX, web developer type person to work on, for example, something like Ignition that provides the architectural and functional freedom and capability to build those kind of front ends and, and user interfaces, because that is what is important to the customer at that time, is how my people not only interact with the system, but how intuitive that interaction is um, and how that intuitive interaction will save my people time and help them make easier decisions. The system integrators that recognize the importance of that, and and they're not just hiring engineers anymore, but but even like front end web developers to to help them do that. So that's that's a very very big shift from from a couple of years ago. Uh, that's very interesting. You know, again, like based on my experience, uh, it would be quite challenging, I guess. Well, it, it depends on the workflow and how you integrate your teams, but to have someone come in maybe with a, a pure web. A background and learn all the instrumentation side but if the i guess the decoupling is done well enough then i could see how that would definitely be a value add especially that uh you know i would say that our industry is not necessarily following the best practices that have been set 
you know, in the mobile space, in the web space, as you mentioned, there's, I think, uh, very well documented um, UX, UI of best practices. And like one example, I think like even Google released it for free uh, for, you know, like they, they've made the UI, UI UX uh, standards for their Android phones. And you can see what's the kind of the best practice approach, which uh, I think our industry still needs to catch up. But it, it's certainly interesting. You know, I've I've heard of software engineers certainly entering a lot more of the automation space, but uh, yeah. on the UI UX side, it's it's not an obvious, yeah. I guess, or I've I've not heard of it being well, successfully done. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, let me jump in because I had yep. this conversation yep. with a client less than a week ago, right? Okay. And so the, the conversation is that you're going to put you know, specific machine data on, call it a a 12 inch HMI that's going to live at the computer, right, Vlad? And Hmm. many facilities have big 65 inch televisions that show what the line looks like or what the hour by hour looks like or what specifics of, you know, that area look like. But you're not going to want to put what you can fit on a 65 inch television on a phone, right? Like, even though you could, in theory, scale that 65-inch television down to 5.1 inches or 5.3 inches of a phone, th- that is not reasonable. You know, a facilities manager or a maintenance manager can't go look at that and without five minutes of squeezing to go try to find uh, that specific area, find what they want. Like a f- plant manager probably has eight things that they care about, right? So that they've got – well, they should have their KPIs, right? And if they have their KPIs, they should have six, eight, ten things that they care about. And if they have little check marks or little yeses or green circles that say yes in them, however we want to go, right? Like if they can, if I can go look at it, open the app, see everything is good, then I know my facility is running well. If I see that it's not good, then I can go click on it and go drill in and figure out who I need to talk to or what's not working. And I guess in my opinion, when we talk about bringing UI UX developers on, it's the ability to help build more intuitive systems and solutions to allow people to go take that business intelligence and actually turn it into to useful information. To, to the previous comment about MES, MES is, is all math and politics, right? Like at, at the at the most core, MES is is just simple math, right? Like my sixth grade niece can go do the math, but the issue is not, hey, I have this number and it reads sixteen percent OEE, right? Like going and showing red bars everywhere is is not useful. Going and turning that into useful information requires that you go talk to the humans. That becomes and maybe you overlay it with the business intelligence tools that they currently have. Like that, that is that that is the issue. That is the big skills gap that 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 when yeah. people ask me about MES, I, I want to tell them it's just math, right? Like so much of what we do doesn't get much past eighth or tenth grade math. Um, it's the how do I actually go and apply this information, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is the uh, the absolute hard part. But I want to. I want to touch on scalability, right? And so I, I want to touch on scalability because we've, we've talked about it a few times and I want to touch on scalability to talk about what the old systems look like, what, what old enterprise architecture look like so that we can then go compare it to, to what new enterprise, what modern enterprise architecture 
could look like. And I know that you have a, a good example that you said we can, uh, we can, we can touch on. So I guess uh, if you will allow me, uh, when I think about scalability, uh, when I see people using what we'll call it old software, right? So older software, the issue becomes at some point, the next tag or data point is going to cost me $10,000 to buy a block, the, the next block of tags for my, uh, for, for my system. And so I have seen, especially over the last eight years or so, a shockingly large shift to unlimited solutions, right? Unlimited tags. There, there are certainly people in the industry who are, who charge by tag and probably will charge by tag for the rest of our natural lives, just because they, they've locked some people in and that's how they make money. But even some of the, what I'll call legacy um, SCADA, DCS solutions providers are offering them in, in larger blocks that are more palatable. So when, when we talk about scalability, uh, what does what does scalability look like to you, Yahoo? And, and how does that differ from what you saw back in the, the Wonderware heydays of the, the early to mid 2000s? Yeah, and it does it does feel like it's almost more of a more of a commercial conversation than anything else, you know, because if the if 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 the numbers didn't matter or the numbers added up, scalability wouldn't have been an issue. But you know, a couple of a couple of I, I can absolutely give you an example of a of of a, a very, very cool project that was done recently for um Clover, which is a big uh uh food and beverage um um uh dairy dairy business here in, in, in South Africa. But I, I look at a couple of years ago, and I mean, a lot of those commercial practices, which are actually barriers barriers to using a technology and, and scaling are, are still around. I think of something like, something that, that actually never made sense to me is the concept or, or the notion of a engineering station or an engineering design license. You know, it, it, it's almost akin to, to buying a car and then you want to drive it and, oh, no, you, you need to buy the key. You, you, you don't have a key, well, you, you can't drive the car, you need a key. Well, then why did I buy the car then? You know, the, the, just the, uh, in actual fact, I often think back at it and, and at, at the time I didn't think anything of it. When I think of that very simple example now is why would you want to limit um, people actually deploying and building stuff on your platform that they've bought? Why would you want to limit that to a number of people? And why would you make it almost sometimes prohibitively expensive to do that um, and not only not only charge them for a license to build and develop on the platform that they've just bought but then have different levels of um, design or engineering so oh you want to do something in MES oh, that's that's another that's a different engineering license that you need for that um, so that you know and that's not that doesn't relate anything to the capabilities or the functionality of the software. It, that's why I'm saying it almost feels like it's more of a, a commercial aspect or a commercial touch point. Um, scalability, um, let, let's maybe look at, at Clover. So Clover, um, as a business, they were a very pervasive users, a user of, of a legacy SCADA um, system. Um, technologically, not necessarily anything wrong with with their solution. Um, it was running for a number of years. They were very, they were happy with some aspects of it, and still until they started to look at digital transformation initiatives. So, what does that mean? It means that 
we all know, I mean, there's there's so many different definitions of digital transformation um, out there. I think if you you can just um, look at at the at the business consulting or the consulting firm, and, and they'll have their own unique uh, version or definition of digital transformation. But essentially, in essence, it talks about the three elements that we, we I think we may have mentioned earlier, which is people, process, technology. But very often, um, the most important piece of that any digital transformation initiative um, that is missing or not necessarily focused on initially is the scalability aspect of it. And a lot of people do now mention that as a as the barrier to actually get anything done or drag a project out of that POC black hole that we some, sometimes find a project in. Um, if if you want to do anything within that transformative process. Um, of your people, process, and technology. It has to be able to scale enterprise-wide. Um, otherwise, otherwise, it's not going to happen. Um, we either, we're either going to be told by the CFO or the accountants that, you know, thank you for all the research done and understanding what, what value could be derived, but we, we simply just don't have the money or the numbers don't make sense. Um, or we're going to start with that journey and discover a year later that we, you know, it's not going to work for us be- because of the scalability. So it's the it's the monetary scalability or the cost scalability, and then also just the scalability in terms of how we involve other people within our systems. So Clover, um, they were at exactly that sort of crossroads and understanding. All right, so we want to give other people within our business um, the edges where the action is. So we have now deployed a whole host of these sort of um, affordable uh, edge solutions where we can get data into 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 our systems we are now in the process of understanding how we make sense of that data how we contextualize it clean it make it meaningful information that we can share with the enterprise what platform do we use for that how do we do that how do we deploy that you know do we buy an additional 40 client licenses because it's price per client license um, and that was actually the start of them to understand what are our requirements from technology as a business? What is the selection criteria that we define around cap- uh, capability, simplicity of use, but more importantly, scalability? And how do we bring more people into our system and make it open and let people use it as opposed to make it this closed off system that's only a certain handful of experts can use? Um, and that, that was really the, the Clover Clover journey and the team at Clover has done an amazing job to to make a conscious decision to rip and replace, um, but having the long term view of scalability to meet digital transformation um, objectives within their business. And what was I guess I think you've touched on this a little bit, but what was the initial trigger maybe to go on uh, on this journey? You said that they wanted to go on digital transformation and explore some of the initiatives, but what was the, what was the push uh, to go that route? Um, the push I think was twofold. The push was absolutely a data to information push. Um, the systems, the systems deployed at the time were not open. Um, we, we, we call it these, these black boxes um, where you needed a certain, uh, a certain specific driver or an interface that comes obviously as it would at an additional cost that's not included with a solution to access your own data. Um, th- that was the first thing. 
And they realized that without access to their data to get the required context, trends, um, even predictive views that they were looking for, without the access to their own data, which they technically owned, and being able to easily share and deploy that at scale with different users of the contextualized data within their business, that, that was the first view. And the second one was probably the um, more painful one, which was the annual cost associated with owning the piece of software that they had or the software in the systems that they had. Um, you know, the uh, you mentioned mining a little bit earlier, Dave. So mining is obviously um, very... Um, you live and die by the, by the commodity price at the time, right? So the focus there is to spend the money up front when you have it and then keep your OPEX as low as possible as you can. Um, where um, for somebody like Clover and some other customers within the, the food and beverage industry, that's not necessarily as big a driver or as big a cost factor. They have typically have larger OPEX budgets to work with, but they do also still focus on the capex, capex, capital expenditure um, side of it. Um, but where the pain comes in is where you buy a piece of technology, you invest, you invest in a piece of technology and the, and the long-term value that you derive from that, that software, right? Where the annual cost of maintaining that with marginal scalability, extensibility and value add associated with that annual cost, um, that just increases every year. That's, that's when it becomes painful. Um, and I mean, it's not it's not picking on picking or highlighting or exposing any specific vendor or software vendor, because a lot of them work on exactly that principle. You know, for them as a business, the selfish view is the stickiness that you create for yourself as a business, and getting that annuity income. Um, but from a from a customer point of view, unless you really understand how you deploy almost instantaneously. The marginal value that is available through a certain upgrade or a version at that time, um, you don't really see the value of that, of that annual cost. Um, and if the upgrade process involves going on an open tender uh, to get somebody to tender on a two, three month process just to do a version upgrade on the system, it makes even less sense. I think there's, you know, several directions we can take our discussion from here. Let me ask one last question before we need to thank our sponsor. I, I'm curious, you know, on the first point that you mentioned, which is, you know, ripping and replacing these black boxes as maybe a trigger point of going on a digital transformation journey, but ultimately rethinking your entire architecture. So I'm curious, you know, do you see that very frequently? Do you see that changing? Do you still see a lot of maybe end users being locked in and thus wanting to get in touch with uh, some of the systems integrators that you work with in order to find a better solution than, again, having to either pay to access that data or not being able to access that at all? And again, maybe if you have some perspective versus the U.S. market, because I've certainly seen this uh, practice here, but I think it's diminishing. I, I'm wondering if you're if, if you're seeing a similar trend, if you're seeing any differences uh, in the South African market. Yeah, um, I almost want to say, Vlad, yes and no. So yes, we do see a lot less of that proprietary locked-in um, solutions deployed in a hundred percent. We do we do understand, and and a lot of 
solutions and, and offerings are focusing on the open protocols and the ability to easily share with another system um, that is slowly but surely being built or at least uh, rebuilt with, with a lot of these, these, these offerings out there. Why I say no is because at the same time, we have a fairly pervasive trend of new IoT platforms um, that's flooding the market. You have, for example, an instrumentation manufacturer. They focused on pressure, flow, uh, whatever the, the, the measurement is of, of the instrumentation has been for the last couple of years. Hey, we need an IoT offering. We need to be able to, the data that you get from using our devices and our instrumentation, we'll package that for you in an IoT dashboard that you can subscribe to, that you can subscribe to every month and access your data that you technically own because you already have the devices. Um, and yes, it is, it is, they are quick and easy solutions. Um, there are many of them. It is very real time focused. And it does create another data silo. So, so you are, you inevitably, you're creating more data silos by deploying those solutions. So you may have the, the ability to right now at this point in time, get a view on a dashboard somewhere in terms of what's happening somewhere on your system. But that's another data silo that is not contextualized with data points and other systems from within your architecture, for example, quality maintenance. Um, so, th so that's where the, a little bit of a cynical no comes in because, you know, the systems are, are, are popular and, but it, they are creating more data silos. That's interesting. And I think there's a lot of like home IOT systems, especially that, uh, have that practice. Right. And so again, maybe there's some kind of a transition into the industrial space, uh, from there, but it's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I was going to say, I, I think when we talk about all of those IOT or IOT systems, that vendors are coming up with. I, I kind of think about it similar to streaming services, right? So at some point, Netflix was basically the first streaming service and everyone could purchase Netflix for $5 a month. So it made sense for everyone to purchase Netflix for $5 a month. And then fast forward six, 10 years from that point, And suddenly everyone has their own streaming service and they're all between $5 and $20 a month. And at some point, uh, so that there was CNN plus. So CNN launched their own service very unsuccessfully that they launched and imploded at some point over the course of like two months, uh, mm -hmm. a shocking implosion for the hundreds of millions of dollars that I'm sure it cost to go ahead and build this service. And so I, I think that while, Everyone having their own service is easy and it makes sense for those individual groups. At some mm. point, we're going to have to see someone come in and re-aggregate those almost. Maybe that is the modern enterprise architecture, right? Maybe we're, we're just taking dashboards and sensors and we're replacing them with things that we already own internally, uh, especially for facilities at scale that have or would have the need to own two, three, five, ten of those. I would say yeah. that if you're a small facility and you can take everything that you need with a package set of sensors into one box, and that box has maybe a little HMI screen and some cloud data, that's probably the cheapest and easiest way you can go ahead and visualize what you need and then pull yeah. that out into a Power BI or, or some other tool. 
So yes. I, I would like to keep this conversation going, but as Vlad mentioned, we do have to thank some sponsors. So Vlad, if you would play the sound. There you go. Awesome. Uh, so we want to thank uh, Canary and Flow uh, for sponsoring uh, this theme. Uh, are you serious about maximizing the value of your process data? Canary will help you historize every sensor and time series data point within your enterprise at a fair price and incredible performance. Lossless data compression, modern trending tools, and an unlimited tag model make Canary the data historian that never cuts corners. But historizing data only solves part of the problem. For superpowered analytics, you need Flow. Flow Software is the analytics hub for data scientists and decision makers. With Flow, you can unify real-time historic and transactional data with little to no code. Finally, a single source for all your enterprise-level data queries, perfect for data scientists and the IT teams that support them. Again, we want to thank Flow and Canary for sponsoring this theme and continuing to be great, great members of, of our community. Um, I will make a note. Uh, it was my original intention to talk about the Clover example immediately after this because Clover, th that is the stack... Uh, the ignition, the flow, and the canary is the stack that we, we know that yeah. uh, Clover is uh, is using. Uh, but it was just too exciting of a conversation to uh, to go ahead and pause uh, midway through there. So I want to kind of move this towards uh, toward back towards the enterprise, right? So we we were talking about uh, we've been talking about modern enterprise architecture. We've been talking about what enterprises are making decisions on, right? So with, with Bram and Jeff we had defined the goal of a modern enterprise architecture uh, to include basically being platform agnostic, right? It's, it's more important right. that we find scalable solutions than, than we are specifically talking about uh, very particular platforms or, or even pieces of technology. A modern enterprise, I guess, at its core will be what is best for that, that particular organization. Uh, and so as you're going and, and talking with organizations, what, what is kind of the, the driving factor? Are they talking about digital transformation? Are they talking about enterprise issues? Are they talking about <clears throat> scalability issues? Are they talking about needing to upgrade? So when you guys go and talk to, you know, your, your large end users or you go and you work with your systems integrators to talk to your end users, what, what are the driving questions that they are they're asking or what are the business needs that they have that is moving towards the, the need for us to build this modern enterprise architecture yeah um david is all around that it's, it's all about the data i'll, I'll give you an example a, a lot of businesses let's let's look at for example the utility space water uh energy i think a lot of businesses have the view right, we feel that we need to reduce cost by X, or we feel that we can improve measure by Y. Very often that's done without no understanding of what the current baseline is, right? So it's yes. uh, to understand, all right, so we have an initiative, uh, it could be any initiative, but it's typically focused on saving money or making more money. I mean, that's the basic fundamental. So regardless of what this initiative is, let's look at energy at the moment. If we do not know what that baseline is, how do we understand what we can improve by or how much we can save? And without having the relevant data, we won't know what that baseline is. And maybe we'll even be surprised when we do know what that, learn eventually what that baseline is. Um, so having the 
um, when I say it's, it's the conversations, it's all around data. I almost want to say that the biggest requirement right now is having contextualized information that provides a single source of truth. You, you probably would have heard, I would imagine Graham would have spoken about the single source of truth. Um, it's, it's all around having that data to information to a single view that allows us to make decisions. That is um, probably the barrier, again, regardless of what the initiative is, and the initiative is that, uh, is that people are looking at, which is connected to a business case. But without that data, they cannot actually realize that or even understand where they are. Um, I, I think I mentioned to, to you, Vlad, last week that you, you visit a customer on the site and you find that 60% of the time in a production meeting is actually arguing about the validity of a data or a data point, where, where the purpose of that meeting is not to argue about the data or question the, the data or the value that we're seeing. The purpose of that meeting is to get to actions and, and make decisions in terms of how do we improve better, faster going into the next production run or what we should be aware of. Um, and that's the fundamental challenge is having a view of the data that everybody trusts. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the architecture? Uh, we spoke a little bit about some of these IoT solutions that are being deployed, and I agree with you 100%, Dave. I think a lot of those make a lot of sense depending on the scenario and the use case uh, because of the affordability and the ease of use. Mm -hmm. At some point in time, you would need to deploy somewhere where you store the data. Um, it's not a data lake that becomes a data swamp, at least not in the, in the production or in the industrial uh, world. Process historian is ideal. Um, the kind of repository where you, you, you don't, you're not limited by what you can store and be worried about the performance in storing that, regardless of resolution. It, it's, it's reliable. Uh, it's easy to get the data in, regardless of source. It's easy to get the data out. Um, I, I would probably think that is the first step. And it, it feels like that's a lot more vertical. You know, there are still very much tiered architectures because there are a local site view and accessibility to data that where not all that data is relevant as information on an enterprise level. And then there's typically some kind of aggregation that happens and there's certain relevant points that are sent to, to an enterprise or a, or a head office level. But why I'm saying vertical is that should not, um, where you deploy that shouldn't be determined or at least be done with the, the traditional clean horizontal kind of architecture. You should be able, I think the edge, the edge is where a lot of action is happening nowadays, the ability to collect at edge standardize, contextualize, model, and push that through to, to, to your process historian as an, as an example. You know, where is that edge today? The edge is not at the bottom anymore. The edge is an actual fact with the advent of IoT. The edge is all around us, all around the, the automation pyramid. Um, so, so that has changed a lot as well. Let me ask a follow-up question too, because I think uh, Dave asked a really interesting question on the end users, and I wanted to maybe get more clarification because to me, it almost seems like, it's almost like a chicken or the egg problem, right? And so what I want to clarify is, do you see more end users coming in and having, let's say, a very defined set of problems 
and in looking for specific data that can help them, again, either make a baseline or help them improve those processes? Or do you see a lot of the end users that would come in with, well, we understand you guys understand data and how to build these solutions, but we don't necessarily know what problems we can solve in our business. Because I think those are almost uh, two parallels that, uh, at least from my experience, drive different conversations. So I'm curious if you're seeing kind of customer A or B uh, in your situation. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, know your problem. Know your problem and your process. Um, if you do not know what you're attempting to to improve or eradicate, then then sort of throwing data into an algorithm and hoping for an answer, at, at least to me, it seems like madness. Uh, there's got to be a very good understanding of your inputs and your outputs, uh, a very good understanding of what are, what affects your processes, your processes. Um, and if you do not know your process, knowing what data is important and not important, that 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 leads to confusion. So I think um, we we do see the we do see both, Vlad, um, and at least in our humble experience dealing with many customers, we do see both. The ones that typically don't know what their business challenges are, um, those are typically the ones. Let's use an example. Nobody just puts down an historian. Nobody says, "Hey, we need a historian." There are very specific reasons you need an historian, and it, and it's nine times out of ten it relates to. Yes, there are some uh, some some regulatory requirements requirements around the storing of data points, but nine times out of ten, it relates to a very specific business problem that needs to be resolved, where we can only find those answers in in information that comes from our data. The latter group, or the group that, or, or sorry, or that group that deploy a technology hoping to get answers, that's typically where the budget is not approved or it sits in a POC, the POC black hole, um, and, and it just never moves forward and never progresses forward. Um, it's typically because it's not agile, the approach. You know, it's not a big bang approach where we need to deploy a technology platform uh, bar, bar none um, for a couple of million uh, over the next five years. It's typically more focused on low hanging fruit, quick ROI, identifying business problems, um, Zooming in on those business problems, knowing our inputs and our outputs, and then understanding how we get those answers from the data. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I said, I've I've certainly seen both uh, instances from my experience, and I would say it, it's not maybe as straightforward as just saying let's deploy this piece of technology, but it's more not knowing what's out there and having this. I, I guess like thinking in the back of your head or. You go visit a convention, you see other companies implementing data, they're trying to get efficiency out of their lines or what have you. So you start asking yourself questions, should we be doing this or how can we approach this? And as you mentioned, there's a lot of maybe confusion of how to get started or how to identify uh, those business problems. Hence the reason why, you know, I, w I was curious if you have um, people coming in for maybe like a consultation of what can be done because... I think it's also important to recognize that, uh, and me and Dave had this conversation in the past, but even if you have different industries, a production process remains a production process, right? So you may not be doing something that has, like, you may be trying to solve a problem that's already been solved in a different industry or a different plan or what have you. You just don't know how to apply it uh, to your specific process. So that's why 
you know, I wanted to understand a little bit better how the the flow um, is structured. Yeah, I, I do. I do want to say that um, you know, we've. I'm sure we've all received those RFPs and those those RFQs that don't have any business any business context within them. So they talk about the technology, the architecture, um, the functional requirements that they specify even in certain cases. But at no point do they tell you why this is happening. Um, uh, that's a that's a very big fundamental step. So so the way that some of the partners work with and is very successful for them is they start very, very small. Identify one, two, three KPIs. That's it. No more than that. One, two, three KPIs that is going to make a difference to your bottom line. It's going to make a difference in, ter- in terms of efficiency or efficacy or time for X, Y, Z role players within your organization. Identify those KPIs. Understand how they want to see those KPIs. Do they want to see it in the form of a report, a dashboard, a trend, a green light or a, or a red light? When do they want to see it? Every morning at six o'clock and they want to get it via email. That is a, that's a good departure point. That, that, that's a good start. And it's small enough to be agile. It's small enough to prove quick return. Uh, and then you can head to your, all right, what's happening and how do we get this data to make that happen? Um, but the, you know, again, it's just, it's just approaches that we, we have seen with some of our partners that, that are successful and typically lead to long-term relationships with those customers. I think that makes sense. Dave, uh, you, you have a thought or want to jump in? No, I think, I think all of those are, are absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, I do kind of want to continue this as, uh, as we have once again uh, blasted well over the hour that we always set out to, uh, to talk about the topic, but to, uh, to kind of bring us back to, uh, to a conclusion. We've got, some, we've got some questions, as you know, that we ask everyone. And I feel like we've covered a number of them, but we want to give you the opportunity to answer. So um, what do you imagine the future, the, the future of this industry uh, looks like? Is it this scalable uh, modern enterprise architecture? What are your thoughts on, on where the future of this industry lie? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's super exciting at the minute. Um, you know, I've, I've, what, one of the reasons why it's exciting is I haven't seen at least in the, in the last 20, 20 plus years, I haven't seen this much of a community feel in our industry. When I say a community feel, so many different vendors, people, customers, integrators, all speaking, uh, finding common ground and, and talking about the same, same things. It, it's phenomenal. It's, it really is encouraging. And it's, um, and I think tying in with that, there's also a younger generation entering our industry. Uh, you mentioned m- mobility a little while ago. Um, you know, mobility is is almost a given to a younger person. Certainly, to me, it would be um, yep. not be. Mobility is is a given. You know, the the ability to see something on a mobile device. Um, so, I think as we see younger people coming into our industry, um, we see easier technologies. When I say easier technologies, simpler technologies that are less complex, less reliant on experts, um, and that create less technical debt within your business. As we see the combination of those technologies, younger people, and a real focus on 
business value in understanding the data from our plant floor, contextualized, cleaned, um, will give us those answers. I, I think we're in for for really really exciting times, and it's going to be it's going to be a roller coaster. I think Edge is going to explode in terms of um, data data adding. Um, the world of data analytics is uh, yeah, that's going to be a fascinating one. I think I think something like Flow, which which you have probably through your conversation with Graham is is a little bit unique. Um, it's not just a dashboard, which which I think that coming together of OT and IT, the IT folks would yeah, we've got Power BI. Um, so I think that analytics space, together with with obviously the impact of the hyperscalers, um, that's going to be a fascinating space. Um, I don't want to call it a battleground. It's certainly not a battleground. It's an opportunity. Um, but yeah, I don't even know if there was a prediction or just vague commentary. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I love that. I, I love that. And so typically the, the next question is a book recommendation, but you say that, that you, yeah. uh, you guys do what you're watching, what you're listening to and what you're reading uh, when, when you guys as a group get together. So we're going to yeah. ask you th- those three questions and we may or may not steal that. As, uh, as part of the format moving forward. So, Yako, uh, what are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Cool. We, we just find we're doing that because we're reading less than we used to. But uh, so, so what, are we, what are we watching? Maybe we can kick off with that. We are absolutely loving watching Integrate Live at the minute. Um, I think Jeff and, and Alan and, and the whole community are just creating a, a really, really valuable um content platform uh with some really good conversation happening on there so we we're watching all of that as a team integrate life uh what we're listening to we always find the um manufacturing hub um naturally top of our list a couple of others we find the inductive uh, podcast um they've also broadened their their sort of the, the guests and, and and people that they that they speak to those are always valuable what we're reading is very personal. Um, I very recently I've reread two books, in fact, that I read uh, many years ago. One of them was Patrick Leccioni, the ideal team player. Um, and the other one, interestingly enough, you you may not even be familiar, is, is um uh, Thank You for Being Late by um uh Thomas Thomas Friedman, uh, which was in 2016, I think it was published for the first time, which at that time sort of perfectly spoke about technology, globalization, and nature, and how those forces are coming together and what that means for, for the men and women work, working everywhere, um, whether it's the industrial field or, or even at home. Um, that, that was a fascinating read. There's a couple of others that I am that, that I'm really want to get my hands or onto my Kindle. It's just a, it's just a time thing, Dave. Uh, it, it, it's always a time thing. So, uh, yeah. so, so we joke, I think, starting somewhere around episode five or six, uh, we, we've been asking for the book recommendation. And so I would imagine that we have somewhere like 150 book recommendations and Vlad okay. has downloaded all of them on his audible. Um, he is getting ready to go on vacation to a place that does not have internet. And he thinks he's going to be fine because he's got like 150 books that, uh, that he's going to go listen to over that week or two weeks uh, without internet. We'll, we'll see how much uh, internet shakes he has when uh, when when he comes back, but those are those are absolutely a couple of good books, and uh, and I would agree. I have many books that I would love to read. It's always when am I going to go find time uh, to to read those? I think I actually have a couple in the mailbox uh, to go pick up after the show. But 
talking about podcasts, uh, we would be negligent as podcast host if we didn't ask you about your podcast. So you run the Human and Machine podcast, right? You guys have a, a couple of series. Can you give everyone the, the quick overview, maybe if they haven't heard of the Human and Machine podcast, please? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. So yeah, the Human and Machine podcast, we, we are by no means um, uh, at your level of, of podcasting. Uh, so it's it's Lenny Smith from Flow and I. Um, the Human and Machine podcast, I think um, very similar to what we try trying to do on, on these episodes is sort of demystify some, some noise and tech, but more importantly, speak to the personalities in our industries and, and understand how do they perceive all of this? Um, people that are heroes. I, I look at some, you know, the, the, the process of we, the, the experience of COVID. You know, there were some incredible heroes, um, team leaders just trying to protect the jobs of their people while trying to keep plants running. You know, we had some, some, some incredible conversations with people post COVID in the manufacturing world. So it is really a podcast where we talk less about technology and more about the people. Um, in the background that are that are trying to make it all happen and, and and trying to add value. No, absolutely. I love that. So we will, of course, have links to all of those. Um, we'll, we'll throw them in the comments and you guys can also cool. check them all out in the show notes, especially check out uh, the Human and Machine podcast. I'm excited. I heard there are a couple more podcasts uh, coming out in the can. So I am I'm excited to uh, to listen to the new ones as they come out. I think they're all it's all very good. Uh, as you were talking in the beginning about going from psychology to industrial psychology, I'm like, oh, th there is the connection to the human and machine podcast. And uh, especially we in, in manufacturing, I, I feel like we focus so much on the technology that sometimes mm. it's easy to gloss over and miss the human part. And th there is no success in our industry with uh, without the humans to, to run the machines or the humans uh, to fix everything. Uh, so kind of Continuing on from there, is do you have some career advice for us? Um, most of the time we talk early, maybe mid-career. Should they do? Uh, sh should they follow your path? Uh, should they do something different? What What is your advice on that? Um, either. I think, I mean, it's everybody's on their own journey, Dave. I think, I think probably to simplify it, I think it's just all about continuous learning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't. I can't recall the saying. Uh, the two most important dates in your life: the first is when you're born, and the second is when you find out why. Um, <laughs> you know, some of, some of us discover our callings very late in life, yep. but I think probably the most important thing that we can do is to be resourceful and continuous learning. Um, you know, I do see it, especially with young with young people, that um, the practical aspects of learning is, is super critical. You know, because you could you've seen somebody do something on a tutorial or on YouTube doesn't mean that you can do it. Um, you know, it's, it's almost, again, it's akin to watching a, a street walk of, of Venice in Italy and then thinking that you've been there. Oh, yeah, I've been to Venice. You know, half, half of the experience and more than half of the fun is actually doing something yourself. So outside of just continuous daily learning um, and making time for learning is, is actually doing the practical aspects of that learning as well. Um, especially in our field. I, th I think that's a, that's a very important one. I, I, I would agree. I would say, especially in our field, that it's one of those that you can just do the same. And some people love doing the same thing day after day after day. I, I mm. would go crazy. Um, I, I would go crazy if, if I didn't continue to, uh, to try to move forward and learn things. But I, I think uh, continuously learning and, uh, and experiencing 
I think those are very good pieces of advice. So, so the last yeah. question for you is, is who should reach out? Who do you want to connect with? Are you guys looking to grow your team? Are you looking for more customers? This is kind of your opportunity to, uh, to kind of ask the community for, for any and everything that you're looking for. Yeah, we're looking for like-minded people to join our community. You know, we, we are based in South Africa. Um, so we do very much focus on, on, on the African community. Um, we are looking for people that enjoy conversations um, very similar to, to the one that we've just had that are probably at times a little bit more philosophical than practical, um, but still very, very important for us. So we are looking for system integrators. We are looking for uh, end users struggling to make sense of their data, struggling to add value through what they have available um, and, the, and the teams that they have. Join us, have, have a conversation with us. Um, I am on LinkedIn, as is Element 8. Have a listen to the, to the Human and Machine podcast see if you enjoy and if you relate to what we're saying and, and let's chat after that. I love that. I think that this has been fantastic. I, I thank you so much for being here. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, I, I will go ahead and, and make the request. If you guys have somehow managed to listen to the last almost 90 minutes of this, uh, of this in podcast form, please hit the subscribe button. Please rate us five stars everywhere. You can go ahead and rate us five stars. Follow us on manufacturinghub.live, which is where you can see uh, this show um, and the last now 69 episodes of the backlog. Uh, but no, this has been amazing. And again, thank you, everyone. This has been episode 70 of the Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and Vlad. Yako, uh, thank you so much uh, for spending your time here and continuing to help us expand our footprint out into uh, out into the South African uh, market, which up until about six weeks ago, I'm not sure Vlad and I ever thought we'd have the opportunity to say. You are absolutely um, doing yourself an injustice by not visiting us, uh, and we'll visit all the spots in Cape Town Day. But thank you very much for the opportunity. I love the chat. I hope there wasn't too much monologuing in there. I, I fear that maybe there, there would have been. Uh, but thank you so much for the for the valuable chat. I loved every second of it. No, no, thank you so much, uh, everyone. We will catch everyone live again uh, this time uh, next Wednesday, and at some point in the future, we will. We, we Vlad and I will be in Cape Town um, at, at some point in the future, and and we will do something from the soon to be new Element Eight uh, offices. Let the recording show that you've been invited formally. Perfect. It, it has no perfect. So uh, so thank you, everyone. We, we will catch everyone live. Um, next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.